On an early morning in the year 1671, shouts ring out from the Tower of London. Murder! Treason! A pool of dark blood spreads across the stone floor. Out of a doorway staggers the figure of an old man clutching his side. A large blue welt swells at his temple. He's been struck with a mallet and stabbed with a sword. But he doesn't let his wounds stop him. He drags himself forward to warn the others. He must protect the royal treasure at all costs. Meanwhile, deep inside the tower, a man who calls himself Colonel Blood and his gang of ruffians are racing to dismantle a metal grate. Behind its bars sits the biggest prize in all of England, the crown jewels. Blood is a man in his 50s with long, wavy hair and eyebrows often cocked in a sardonic sneer. He fidgets impatiently as his men unscrew the cage. Finally, they cast the grate aside. Blood can't believe the sight that greets his eyes. Treasures, scepters, orbs made of pure gold. They're encrusted from top to bottom with diamonds and colorful gems, some as big as walnuts. They glisten, even in the tower's dreary gloom, as though they produce their own light. Blood is awestruck. He digs his fingers deep into the chest, passing over jewels and diamonds the size of small eggs. Suddenly, his fingers strike gold. Literally, Blood picks it up, the item that has always been the bane of his very existence, the English royal crown. Time seems to stop as Blood's hands begin shaking. He's grasping it so tightly his knuckles turn ghostly. How can a thing so beautiful cause such insurmountable pain in his life? The clock is ticking and Blood's cohorts start to hear footsteps. There isn't much time. They scream his name, but it's not enough to pull him out of his rage trance. Blood hears nothing. He's focused as he slowly lowers one symbol of monarchical tyranny onto the stone floor, inside the very edifice that symbolizes sovereign cruelty. Something shatters the eerie silence in his head. Bang, bang, bang. Blood mercilessly smashes the crown with a mallet so violently turns into what can only be described as a golden pancake, each blow releasing years and years of resentment, anger, and disgust. Exhausted and hyperventilating, Blood snaps out of his catharsis. His fellow brutes finish pocketing the remaining riches and push their disturbed leader through the corridor. At this point, they're laden with enough wealth to last several lifetimes. And yes, they expect to just walk out of the door with it. But a lookout sounds the alarm. They've been discovered. Colonel Blood and his merry band rush the exit, their pockets clanking with stolen loot. But it's too late. A swarm of guards corners them, pikes in hand. Blood looks around frantically searching for an out. There's none. He takes a deep breath and nonchalantly smiles. Because that's what legends do. That early spring morning in 1671... Thomas Blood attempted to pull off the heist of the millennium, or less eloquently, Ocean's Eleven on bath salts. His mythic exploit grabbed the imaginations of people for centuries, but none more fervently than the English who lived through it. As you'll see, mid-17th century England was a tumultuous time filled with bloody civil wars. Regicide after regicide and social unrest perhaps spawned from the Shakespearean fervor for tall tales, heroic folklore, and larger-than-life personalities a century before. The English needed an anti-hero, so to speak, 
to rally around, their very own Tony Soprano, Walter White, or even Dexter Morgan to call their own. And none proved more deliciously villainous than Thomas Blood. But how did we get here? And more interestingly, what drives a person to embark on a suicide mission, like stealing the crown jewels from the Tower of London? Especially during an unenlightened time, when decapitations, disembowelments, and other forms of torture are handed out like candy. As you'll learn, with Thomas Blood, there's far more than meets the eye. History consists of heroes and villains, and I suppose everything in between. But it's usually the villains who are the most interesting. Their flaws, their quirks, the voids in their hearts that force them to do the unthinkable. These are the characters that fascinate us. That pull us in. That compel us to watch and don't let us look away. These are the characters that we're all about. You've heard of Al Capone, but what about George Remus, whose bootlegging empire made Capone's operation look like a lemonade stand? Sure, you know Billy the Kid, but while he was robbing cattle with a pistol, James McClintock was blowing up men by the dozen with his newfangled war machines. Never heard of them? Just wait, you'll see. And it's all true. Each episode, we want you to join them on their treacherous journeys to not only learn about what makes them tick, but more importantly, feel the times that created them. From the creators of Myths and Legends and from Cast Media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join with us every episode as we explore dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. Today, we're talking about blood diamonds, but not the ones that probably come to mind. We're following a guy named Thomas Blood and his quest to do something big, namely, steal the crown jewels. Here's a guy who knows the meaning of playing both sides. As England goes through a tumultuous civil war, Blood throws his weight behind whoever seems to be winning. And he also loves a good scheme, especially if it can make him a quick buck. He tries his hand at kidnapping, and when that doesn't work, he becomes a con man. People can't help but fall for his roguish charm. His big break comes when he pulls off the most daring heist in England, the theft of the crown jewels. Yet after he's caught, the question is, Will his past crimes finally catch up with him? Are there any tricks left in his bag? Or will he meet a horrible fate befitting such a traitor? Thomas Blood has no reason to turn to a life of crime. He's born in Ireland in 1618 to a well-to-do middle-class family. His father is a blacksmith who owns property in various counties. His family has enough money to send young Thomas to England for his schooling. It's a great opportunity, and it's also eye-opening. In spite of being part ethnically English, it's here that young blood gets his first taste of the cruel reality of being Irish in the Anglo-Saxon world. Many of blood's peers see him as a second-class citizen, simply on account of his Irish roots. One can only think of the ridicule Thomas faces as his accent drops hints of his origins, the laughs, the sneers, the exclusion, no matter how skillfully he tries to cover it up. Worst of all, the shame he must feel. Nevertheless, Thomas soldiers on as a proud, quasi-Englishman in the making. That is, until everything changes. It's 1642, and Blood is in his mid-twenties when the first English Civil War breaks out. It's a fight between the Royalists, who support King Charles I. And the Parliamentarians, who think the monarch needs to lose some of his power and give it over to them. 
They're led by the cold-blooded Puritan general, Oliver Cromwell. Like a good little semi-Englishman, blood saddles up on the side of the king. Initially, but it soon becomes clear that the winds of change favor Cromwell and the parliamentarians. As the general's army marches west, conquering more and more territory, blood weighs his options. He could fight or even die for a king that wouldn't give him the time of day or do something absolutely unthinkable, like commit treason, which, yes, is an offense met with a brutal death, but which currently leads to joining Cromwell and ringing in a brand new era for England. It seems like a lose-win situation, and Blood absolutely wants to win. However, like a lot of decisions in life, this one is not that cut and dry. Blood still has a lot to lose, even if he joins Cromwell. For one, he's married with children. Four years earlier, in 1638, Blood made a vow to have and to hold his new bride, Maria Holcroft, the daughter of a well-to-do English family in Lancashire. Decisions, decisions. Well, with the stakes high and a crossroads in front of him, Blood figures history favors the bold and becomes a lieutenant in Cromwell's roundheads. And believe it or not, the gamble pays off for now. In 1653, Cromwell declares victory and has the king beheaded. He makes himself Lord Protector of the Commonwealth, whatever that means. And Blood, for his so-called loyalty, receives a pretty sweet windfall. He gets a big estate in England and is even made Justice of the Peace. Seems like flip-flopping was a pretty good idea after all. Because life is good for Blood and his family. He's living the life of Riley, so to speak. Sure, he's got some misgivings about betraying his supposed king, but to the victor goes the spoils, right? Well, here's the thing about history. The wheel keeps on turning. Seven years later, by 1660, 18 years since the English Civil War first started, the deposed king's son, Charles II, returns to England. The monarchy is restored, and now it's Cromwell's turn to lose his head. As for Blood, he's now viewed as a traitor to the royalists, which technically he is. Charles II confiscates all the land. The property and the riches that were recently awarded to Blood for his initial sedition, essentially rendering him, his wife, and now seven children, completely and utterly homeless. Faced with destitution and the dark winds of poverty blowing around him, it's easy to suspect that Blood likely feels an all too familiar sensation an emotion he's used to feeling, especially at the hands of the English, shame. But as shame does, it quickly mutates into an emotion blood is far more comfortable with, rage. What started as a mild aversion metastasizes into a full-on apoplectic obsession. Blood harbors a glowing hatred for the English monarchy. How dare they seize his lands, the lands he got by betraying them in the first place, but it wasn't his fault. At least, that's what he tells himself. He's now a lifelong enemy of the crown. Blood immediately walks the walk. Rather than tending to his family and trying to salvage some sort of life for his wife and seven children, Blood's blind rage tears him in a different direction. He joins up with other leftover Cromwellians, who are just as bitter about the new monarch as he is, and they formulate a plan to overthrow the English government again. 
1663, three years after scheming, Blood and his gang make their move. Up first, storming Dublin Castle. Why? Because that's where the Duke of Ormond lives. He's the governor of Ireland, representing English rule on the Emerald Isle. That means he symbolizes the king's power. And remember, Blood hates the king. Blood wants to kidnap the duke and hold him for ransom. That'll absolutely get the crown's attention. But he also has an ulterior motive. Sweet, sweet money. It seems, however, Blood's got bravado, but not a lot of brains. It turns out that storming a huge fortress with just a few guys is a lot harder than it sounds. And also, you definitely shouldn't brag about your plans in taverns, especially if they involve treason. Very true. Word gets out about the plot, and before Blood and his band can even say, alas, they're on the run from the wall. They flee to the mountains, the ones who make it, that is. A few are apprehended, and they face the ultimate penalty, death at the end of a rope. Blood runs away from the botched effort, having learned a valuable lesson. No matter what happens, don't get caught. But Blood also gains something else, an obsession with the Duke of Ormond. He blames the Duke for his friend's deaths, even though, you know, Blood's the one who started it. No, it doesn't make any sense. But Blood isn't the kind of guy to let logic stand in the way of a good feud. Eventually, Blood winds up in the Netherlands. You'd think he'd lay low in the low countries, but he's got other plans. Now, Blood has even more of a reason to hate England. He's got a price on his head, and it just so happens that the English and Dutch are at war in the 1660s. So what does he do? Blood decides to leave his family and join the Dutch army just so he can fight against his home country. That's called English channeling your anger. It's somewhere around this time that Blood starts referring to himself as Colonel, even though he isn't one. Apparently, it was a lot harder for people to do background checks back then. But hey, when in Rome, or Holland in this case. That's when Blood learns another important lesson. You can call yourself anything, and people will believe you. It's 1666, a cold, dark room in Amsterdam. Blood sits across from a man larger than life, Admiral Michiel de Ryder, the legendary Dutch sea captain, whose nautical bravery and genius is making the British Navy's existence a total nightmare. They meet in secret to ensure no spies are within earshot of their daring plans. In spite of Blood's English origin, de Ryder implicitly trusts him, and he's never met a man who hates the English crown with an unbridled fury that matches only his. As de Ryder rattles off his strategy, Blood's face is blank. He doesn't hear a word. He doesn't even see de Ryder. Blood is lost in thought. He sees his family, homeless and stripped of their dignity, banging against the castle doors they once called home. He hears something. Laughter. The laughter of English children mocking them the way they mocked him as a schoolboy. Blood's rage reaches a fever pitch as he smashes his fist against the Dutch wooden table, shocking even the unflappable de Ruyter. No more talk. Blood wants blood. De Ruyter grins. After a few years of exacting pain on the British and the Dutch military, Blood decides that it's time to go back to England, even though there's a thousand-pound bounty on his head. Remember that little attempted coup? Yeah, that didn't just go away. 
1670, seven years after his attempt to storm Dublin Castle, Blood is living in London under a new name, Dr. Aloff. No, he didn't go to medical school. He couldn't tell you the difference between black and yellow bile. Yes, that is a four humors joke. Anyway, Blood's become your typical con man, cheating people out of their hard-earned cash. And while in London, who should he find but his old nemesis, the Duke of Ormond? In Blood's mind, his whole exile in the Netherlands was the Duke's fault. Now, it's time to get revenge. So Blood gets in touch with a few old friends. For weeks, they stalk the Duke, watching his every move and taking note of his habits. And on December 6th, 1670, they make a second attempt on the Duke's life. That night, the Duke is riding along in his carriage. Suddenly, it lurches to a halt. Five men in dark cloaks stand in the middle of the road. The footmen outside the carriage find themselves staring down the barrels of pistols. The bandits open the carriage door and wrench the confused Duke into the street. Pulling him into the shadows, they tie his wrists with a rope. On his chest, they pin a note. It explains why the Duke deserves to die. The bandit's plan is to take him to Tyburn, the famous tree used to execute criminals, and leave him hanging there. They set the Duke atop a horse. He's tethered to one of the bandits, so he can't run off. The only problem is, he does. Ormond struggles violently enough to throw himself from the horse and makes a break for it, towing along his captor. At just the right moment, out of the dark, bursts one of the Duke's loyal footmen. He rushes to cut the Duke loose, and the two of them flee into the night. Blood and his conspirators fire their pistols after them, but to no avail. They're gone. Once again, Blood has failed. But at least this time, no one knows enough to attach his name to the crime. In fact, he isn't even on the Duke of Ormond's radar. Their feud is very one-sided. That means Blood is free to come up with a new plan to gain fame and fortune. And this time, he's going big. In 1671, a year after returning to London, Blood sets his sights on literally the most expensive prize in the land, the crown jewels. Now, the original crown jewels are long gone. During Cromwell's short-lived reign, which involved destroying a lot of symbols of the monarchy, he had the treasures melted down, or he just sold them for cash. But the minute Charles II returned to the throne, he wanted jewels of his own. After all, you can't be a king without a crown, right? And Charles, in particular, loved lavishing money on a good time. He was known as the Merry Monarch and had an extravagant, hard-partying lifestyle. So he dropped some serious coin to get himself the royal accessories he deserved. First, there's the crown. It has two arches of solid gold over purple velvet. Every inch is bedecked with so many rubies, amethysts, sapphires, and other gems that the king can't even afford to buy them. He has to rent them for his coronation. Then there are several scepters, also made of gold and mounted with diamonds and precious stones. And to top it all off is an orb, a hollow sphere trimmed with pearls and, you guessed it, more jewels. All this swag symbolizes the restored king's power. And Blood has spent most of his life billing himself as the victim of monarchical tyranny. So, for someone like him, it's the perfect target to send a message. A big middle finger to the king. And it's worth a ton of money. But of course, the crown jewels aren't just sitting out in the open. 
They're housed in the most famous fortress in the land, the Tower of London. It's an imposing stone edifice surrounded by two massive walls and a moat. It's also known for its ravens, who enjoy picking the flesh off the decapitated heads of criminals stuck on pikes around the edges. A warning to all traitors. So, as you can imagine, one does not simply walk into the Tower of London. Or do they? You see, despite being so expensive that the king couldn't even afford them, the crown jewels are kept in the tower's basement. And how many soldiers guard them? A grand total of one. His name is Talbot Edwards, and he's 77 years young. They don't pay him very much, so Edwards moonlights as a tour guide, charging visitors an admissions fee for a peek at the luxurious relics. Really? Really? For a cunning guy like Blood, the old man is the perfect mark. In early 1671, a parson and his wife visit London and decide to see the jewels. Edwards greets the couple at the tower gates and leads them to the basement, where the treasures sit behind a thick oak door in a metal cage. As the tourists peer at the stunning gems, the parson's wife suddenly feels dizzy. Maybe it's the glimmer from all those shiny facets. She falls to the floor with a thud. Edwards rushes to the fainted woman and carries her to his own living quarters on the floor just above. There, he tends to her until she's well enough to stand. The couple is grateful for the guard's kindness, so grateful that they return a few days later with some gloves as a thank you gift for Mrs. Edwards. And that parson's name? Blood. Parson Blood. That fainting wife of his was an actress that he hired for the job. Thus begins the long con. Soon, Parson Blood and Edwards strike up a convenient friendship. Blood visits Edwards and his family frequently in the tower. All the while, he's casing the joint. He's luring Edwards into a false sense of security. One day, Edwards confides in Parson Blood that he's worried about his daughter, who's still unmarried. Blood's face breaks into a grin, no way. He just so happens to have a nephew who's looking for a wife. Rich, too. If the kids marry each other, Edward's daughter will be set for life. The Edwards can't believe their luck. They beg Blood to bring over his nephew so they can meet him. After not much cajoling, Blood agrees. They set a date for the meeting, May 9th, 1671, and start counting down the minutes. As Blood leaves Edward's company that night, he's struck by the older man's thankful, vulnerable smile. Blood has done it again. He's used his wit, his cunning charm, to manipulate his desired outcome. But there's something about the older man's trusting expression that leaves a pang in the stomach of an otherwise numb blood. The only thing this older man is guilty of is trying to make a living to provide for his family. Must he be yet another body in the Count and Blood's never-ending vendetta against the king? Edwards sees Blood staring and looks around uncomfortably, Blood's face hardens as he realizes the cold, hard truth. In his righteous chess game to checkmate the insidious king, all pawns in his way must be sacrificed. And that's who Edwards is to him, a mere pothole needing to be paved. He turns around and walks away even more emboldened than before. The big day finally rolls around. As soon as the sun comes up, Edwards is waiting at the tower's entrance. 
Blood shows up right on time with his nephew in tow. Both men greet Edwards with slithery smiles. But Edwards has no suspicions whatsoever. He thinks Blood is his friend, his friend who's also his meal ticket. Edwards eagerly welcomes the men into his home where breakfast is currently simmering on the fire. Blood nods towards the basement. Hey, while they wait, how about letting his nephew have a look at the crown jewels? You know, since they're here and all, he did come all this way. Edwards shrugs. Why not? They're basically family now. Edwards leads the visitors down to the basement. As soon as he heaves open the heavy door, Blood and the nephew throw a bag over the man's head. Before Edwards can utter a noise, the nephew hits him over the head with a wooden mallet, knocking the old man unconscious. Then, just to be safe, Blood stabs him in the side with a sword. He doesn't want to leave any witnesses. While the nephew keeps watch at the door, Blood creeps to a window and gives a signal to someone waiting outside. Two more men file into the tower as silently as they can. Soon, there's a whole cadre of armed ruffians inside the room. They quickly pry apart the metal grating that protects the jewels. Wow, there they are, ripe for the taking. The thieves salivate like kids eyeing a pile of Halloween candy. They grab the artifacts with greedy hands and immediately realize that they did not think this through. The jewels are too big to carry out in the bags they brought. Seriously? Okay, time for a new plan. They can't just lug the jewels out in the open. So what are they gonna do? Ever the ideas, man, Blood comes up with a solution. He takes the wooden mallet and pounds the golden crown until it's flat as a pancake. He loosens a few gems in the process. Hey, maybe it's not the most subtle plan, but at least it works. Now he can hide the crown inside his robes. Another guy follows suit and files away at a scepter until it snaps in half. A third simply shoves the orb down his pants. They are scraping the barrel for ideas at this point. For a moment, the men share triumphant looks. Awkward bulges in their clothes notwithstanding. They actually did it. They're about to walk out of the Tower of London, stuffed with enough wealth to start their own country. Only their joy doesn't last long. Outside, they hear shouts. One of their group, who's been guarding their getaway horses, rushes in and informs them that they need to leave. Fast, Edward's son just returned home out of the blue and realized that his father was missing. Blood's crewmen tried to keep him out, but the son forced his way into the apartment. He's on his way down to the basement. Blood and his men book it out of there as quickly as they can. But the minute they're gone, Edwards, who's had a bag over his head the whole time and was also stabbed, manages to wriggle himself free. Turns out he's alive and he doesn't waste any time. At the top of his lungs, he screams, murder, treason, the crown is stolen. The tower guards spring into action. But where are the thieves? They're pounding the pavement, trying to make it to the gate. If they can just get to their horses, they'll be good. But, oh no, they've been spotted. The guards are giving chase, and they're not about to let these shameless brigands get away with the crown jewels. That would be, well, embarrassing. That's when blood turns around, pistol drawn. You didn't think he brought a knife to a gunfight, did you? He fires at the guards, catching one of the men in the chest. For a split second, it looks like the thieves will make it. But history isn't a fairy tale. Our anti-heroes don't just ride off into the sunset. Something must have clicked in Blood's mind because he remembers the old lesson from his past. 
don't get caught. Blood decides in the moment that it's more important to escape and keep his head than to keep the crown jewels. So he actually drops the crown from his robes and tries to blend in with the crowd outside the tower. He almost gets away with it too. Just as he's mounting his horse, a guard grabs him by the collar and yanks him down before he can gallop away. His motley crew meet a similar fate. The villains are caught. Remember how Blood tried to storm Dublin Castle and it didn't work? Well, history has a funny way of repeating itself. Turns out if it was a bad plan then, it's still a bad plan now. But even though Blood is in custody, in true Blood fashion, he resists the whole time, kicking and screaming and generally making life difficult for his captors. Remember, he's the real victim here. Oh, and also he can't stop talking about how valiant the heist was, even though it failed. And so the guards take Blood back to the tower, this time as a prisoner. Blood is thrown into a cell in the Tower of London, the place he just tried to rob. Well, looks like the end of the road for old Blood. Getting into the tower might be easy, but getting out is a lot harder. And for his treasonous acts, he's looking at the chopping block. Soon. And yet, Blood has one more power play up his sleeve. After all, he was the mastermind behind a plot against the monarchy. His theft was political. Thus, he'll only answer for his crimes to one person and one person only. The king himself. You'd think Charles II would have better things to do than entertain a lowlife scoundrel who just tried to steal his jewelry. But remember, Charles isn't the most serious monarch. Now that the jewels are safe, he finds the whole incident kind of hilarious. And Blood knows this. You see, during the Restoration, English culture tended to favor characters like Blood. Rogues, libertines, and pirates who thumbed their nose at the establishment. They were just more fun than your typical good guys. So Blood figures that if he plays up his role as a bad boy rebel, maybe the king will forgive him. Turns out... He was right. After adamantly refusing to talk to anyone else, blood is brought to Charles II in his palace at Hampton Court. There, before the king and his entire retinue, blood gives them the laundry list of every bad thing he's done in his life. Included on that list? Fighting to overthrow the English monarchy during the Civil War. Trying to kidnap the Duke of Ormond in Ireland. Also in an attempt to overthrow the government. Trying to kill the Duke of Ormond in London stealing the crown jewels, and also trying to overthrow the government. Again. There's even a story about how one time, Blood thought about assassinating Charles II himself, the king. One day, Blood allegedly spied the king while he happened to be bathing in the River Thames. Blood trained his musket on the monarch, only to stop short. He was too, quote, in awe of his majesty to pull the trigger. Okay, sure. You may have noticed a theme here. Blood really despises the monarchy. They're the reason he lost his estate. They're the reason he had to go into exile in the Netherlands. Everything bad in Blood's life is the king's fault, according to Blood, anyway. Well, you'd think the actual king wouldn't take too kindly to any of this. But Charles II listens intently to Blood's list of treasonous crimes and then bursts into laughter. He thinks Blood is a hoot. He can't believe Blood had the nerve to pull off half the stuff he did. 
Charles asks Blood what he would do if he were granted his freedom. Blood simply replies that he would endeavor to deserve it. That's code for, don't worry, I'll stop trying to overthrow the monarchy. And what does Charles do? He says, sure. The members of the court can't believe it, especially the outraged Duke of Ormond. This guy literally tried to kidnap him, not once, but twice. Now he's getting away scot-free? Nope. It gets worse. Charles pardons Blood of all of his crimes. And then, to top it off, the king likes Blood so much that he gives him land in Ireland worth 500 pounds sterling a year. In today's dollars, that's like a six-figure salary. What? How did his plan actually succeed? Blood gets away with the most audacious heist in England by being so bad he's good? Maybe not good so much as entertaining. He admits that he's a self-serving miscreant whose loyalties shift like a pendulum. From royalist to Cromwellite to self-styled revolutionary jewel thief. Mostly, though, he's just a crook. But a crook with a great story. That's showbiz, baby. After his pardon, Blood keeps up his popularity with the king. He even hangs around Charles's court, much to the chagrin of the Duke of Ormond. Among the nobility, rumors swirl about why Charles pardoned the scallywag. Were Blood's tales of his misadventures so good that they outweighed his treason? Or maybe the king is more calculating than that. Blood does have loyal followers, after all. And perhaps Charles would rather not poke the bear and provoke an uprising. Or maybe Charles thinks that if he forgives Blood, it will earn him brownie points in Ireland, where he's currently having some troubles. Whatever the reason, Blood spends the next nine years as a free man who hobnobs with royalty and has more money than ever before in his life. He's not going to rock the boat, right? Wrong. Ultimately, Blood can't change his true colors. He's a miscreant through and through. He ends up insulting one of his royal patrons and getting sued. Towards the end of his life, Blood is deeply in debt and has such a reputation for scandal that when he dies in 1680, people assume that he faked it. He must have just skipped town with a new identity, like he's done so many times before. In fact, people are so convinced that he's not dead that authorities actually exhume his body to confirm it's him. They rebury him with a headstone that reads, Here lies the man who boldly hath run through more villainies than England ever knew. At a time where the penalty for stealing some apples is the hangman's noose, Blood gets away with way too much. And the thing is, he's not even particularly good at it. It's not like he's a criminal genius. He's just some dude who's too brazen to realize how bad his plans really are. And that just goes to show that history is fickle. Maybe Blood was born at the right place at the right time. He came of age in one of England's most turbulent periods where you pretty much had to be a chameleon in order to survive. And he was far from the only person who switched sides and then switched back during the English Civil War. Blood just happened to be really good at moving with the times. Then, when he got caught with the crown jewels down his pants, he once again saved his neck by reading the room. He played to the culture's love of rakes and scoundrels, something that wouldn't have worked as well during England's earlier, more Puritan periods. In fact, the famous libertine poet John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester, wrote a ditty about blood. 
He describes Blood as a treasonous villain who graces court even though he tried to, quote, steal Ormond and the crown. He ends with this 17th century zinger, since loyalty does no man good, let's steal the king and outdo Blood. Sure, things end up relatively well for old Thomas Blood, relatively speaking. But the question remains, what drives a person like this to embark on a heist so dangerous it's nearly a guaranteed stay in the Iron Maiden? Well, I guess for the answer, it's easy to think back to a young Thomas Blood in school, the only son of Ireland in a sea of English snobs looking down on him throughout his entire life. The upper crust, the aristocracy, and especially the crown would never take him for who he was. So the plan was simple. Take the crown, literally. And what do you know? It worked. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Kirsten Liu. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. <laughs>